The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Kojo Kuram. We spoke about the history of the war on drugs, the role of drug prohibition in the production of racism after the end of formal imperialism, and the central role of the United States in the emergence of the global war on drugs. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, which has a great many left-wing titles that might be of interest to listeners. One you might like to check out is Mario Tronti's Workers and Capital, universally recognised as the most important work produced by Opera Ismo, a current of political thought emerging in the 1960s that revolutionised the institutional and extra-parliamentary left in Italy and beyond. Five decades since it was first published, Workers and Capital remains a key text in the history of the international workers' movement, yet only now appears in English translation for the first time. Visit versobooks.com for more information. As always, you can listen to PTO on iTunes, Acast, SoundCloud, Blueberry and Spotify. And you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle, as always, is at PollTheoryOther. And if you enjoy the show, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. And if you would like to, you can also support the show by donating through Patreon. You can become a supporter for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2.00. And by becoming a patron, you'll get access to extended versions of PTO episodes, including today's interview. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Before we get to the interview, just a quick mention that Joanna Ramiro, who hosts the excellent Red Hack series, a series of conversations on journalism in the neoliberal world, which you can listen to on PTO, We'll be doing a live show at the World Transform Festival on Sunday 22nd of this month at 5.30pm in Brighton. The event is titled Journalism for the Many and the session is for everyone interested in the problems facing journalism and how both the general public and those working in the media can start bringing about change to a fundamentally neoliberal industry. On the panel, Joanna will be speaking with journalists Simon Childs, Kimberly McIntosh and Owen Jones. It should be an excellent event, so do get along if you can. You can find more information about the session and all the other fantastic events at theworldtransformed.org. And now to today's interview. Kojo Karam teaches at Birkbeck School of Law at the University of London. He writes on law, race and empire, and he's written for The Guardian, The Nation and Descent magazine, amongst other publications. Our conversation was prompted by the new book, The War on Drugs and the Global Colour Line, which was edited by Kojo and is out now from Pluto Press. You say in the introduction to the book that the the war on drugs originated in in the 20th century as as quite a a fringe concern of uh, religious missionaries and other anti-vice moralists, uh, as as, as you put it in the book, but that it ended the century as this globe-spanning system of militarised violence and incarceration 
Could you explain why you think that something that was such a marginal cause eventually developed into this, uh, you know, enormous leviathan? Well, I think, first of all, it's really worthwhile just stressing how unlikely the current system of international drug prohibition that we have at the moment will have seen to people in, like, say, the late Victorian era. You know, um, during the time of European imperial power, a lot of the substances that we now call drugs, opium, cocaine, these were stuff that were being distributed as part of other psychoactive commodities by the European imperial powers. Famously, you know, the British were willing to fight a war um, with the Qing dynasty of China in order to trade opium. The Dutch had cocaine plants all the way through Java in modern-day Indonesia. Um, these were seen as commodities that could be traded similar to the other psychoactive commodities that were encountered in the colonial project. Coffee, um, rum, sugar. Only really with the turn of the 20th century, with the entrance of a particularly American set of Christian moralists, people like Bishop Brent, people like Wilbur Crafts and William Dix, a, a rise of anti-vice, uh, anti-vice kind of uh, organisation, that you start to see movements towards international um, legal prohibition of particular psychoactive substances. I think that the reason why it ended up gaining so much traction is the way in which that fringe concern of a kind of Christian moralism also lined up and synthesized with the interests of particularly American foreign policy and America's entrance into the international community. One thing that we often fail to really stress is the way in which international drug prohibition was in a lot of ways America's first foray into the international community with the 1909 Shanghai Opium Commission, the first international convention to look to prohibit um, the trade of opium and the first international drugs kind of meeting really, prohibition meeting, is one of the first times that the United States of America, which has only really solidified itself as a nation state at the end of the 19th century, starts to step away from the kind of isolationist, protectionist route that it had taken in collaboration with ideas of the Monroe Doctrine and starts to play a much more central role in terms of the actual hegemonic position in the international community that it will take by the end of the 20th century. If you trace over the 20th century, as international drug prohibitions start to harden and as they start to get more and more expansive and more and more universal, you also see the increase and expansion of American global economic and military power as well. And I think those two go hand in hand. Is that explained simply in terms of the religiosity of American society or is there something deeper going on? Not simply the religiosity. I think that that's an element. I think that in terms of America's internal domestic society, you can't disregard the tensions around racial miscegenation that you would see within the United States and America, which weren't as much of a concern within the mainland of the European imperial states. A lot of the early laws around drug prohibition, whether we're thinking about the city ordinance in 1871 in San Francisco against opium, which is the very first drug prohibition law passed in the United States of America, or whether we'd start to look at the wave. This is directed at uh, the, the Chinese-American population, right? Absolutely. So from that one, you're looking at the way that that's connected to anxieties around a Chinese-American labour population, but not only about the Chinese-American population, but about the connection and the interactions that it was having with the local white population and that fear of particular substances facilitating the breakdown of racial boundaries and racial hierarchies. 
Um, that starts to repeat itself when you look at the wave of prohibition in the United States against cocaine around the early decades of the 20th century. And then when you start to see a little bit after that, a wave across different states of prohibition against marijuana, cocaine obviously um, seen as associated with a kind of a violent Negro uprising, as was often described. Look at the New York Times articles from, you know, 1914 or uh, marijuana connected, of course, with a Mexican labor population, the actual name change from popularly known as cannabis to marijuana, something that was facilitated by counter-narcotics prohibitionists in order to try and heighten that association between the drug and Mexican immigrant groups. And so I think that that's one huge element of it. I think when it goes to the international level, you have to think about the way in which that attempt to try and cultivate what a lot of people would call a kind of universal humanity, which has really been the kind of driving civilizing mission of American global power that had distinguished itself from its kind of European colonial allies by the idea that it wasn't trying to facilitate formal differences in sovereignty between different communities and groups in the world, that America itself it understood itself as an anti-imperial institution, an anti-imperial state was looking to try and cultivate an idealised universal humanity. And this is the same kind of rhetoric that leads in the later part of the century into international human rights law, ideas around international development. A lot of that rhetoric begins with ideas around international drug prohibition, that the world can only be bettered, can only be improved as a totality with the eradication of dangerous vices that facilitate the kind of denigration of native populations around the world and the associated specific drugs, ideally the big three of opium, cocaine and marijuana, with that denigration of peoples around the world. In terms of the comparison between the United States and, say, the British Empire, for example, is it simply a question of, you know, for the for the British, commercial interests meant that it was uh, important to maintain the flow of, of, of certain products that, that are now not thought of as, as drugs into within the, the, the empire and, and beyond it? Or was it also related to the fact that within Britain there wasn't this kind of moral panic around particular populations because in the uh, the metropole there wasn't a very significant black or brown population? I mean, I think that the commercial interests cannot be dismissed. You know, when you think about the role that the trade and psychoactive commodities played in the emergence of European imperial power, then you see how much of a driver from coffee to sugar to opium a lot of these psychoactive substances were of European imperial growth. And I think, you know, what's fascinating is if you look at the um, a lot of the rhetoric around the time of the Opium War, one example would be, you know, the doyon of kind of um, British liberal political theory, John Stuart Mill in On Liberty, writes about the attempt by the Qing dynasty to prohibit the trade of opium uh, from the British Empire into their jurisdiction, that that itself, that attempt to prohibit the trade of drugs, was evil. It was seen as a moral evil in and of itself. So that was the position that a lot of British commercial interests took, that the attempt to prohibit the trade of opium to intervene in the kind of open market and exchange of these valuable commodities was an infringement on the inherent freedoms of liberal capitalist trade and an evil in and of itself. You fast forward a hundred years, by the time you get the single convention on narcotic drugs, 
which is the first UN treaty that prohibits drugs around the world. And it's really the kind of bedrock for the system of international drug prohibition that we have today. In the preamble to that very treaty, you have the description of the trade and addiction to drugs as being an evil in of itself. So 100 years later, you go from the prohibition being evil to the actual trade itself being evil. And what's curious is that in the Sin Convention on Narcotic Drugs, the description of drugs as evil is an anomaly in actual legislative history of international law. We have legal treaties on things like genocide, slavery, legal treaties on nuclear war, legal treaties on trying to prohibit all kinds of different moral panics None of them are described in the actual treaty that prohibits them as being an evil, only the same convention on narcotic drugs. And so you can see that change over the period of that history. And I think that reflects the way in which approaches from European culture to these psychoactive substances begin to change. In terms of the timeline of the of the war on drugs, I mean, you, you point out that the formal prohibition within you know institutions like the United Nations and these various treaties and so on, th- this occurs contemporaneously with the process of decolonization. Is it your view that the war on drugs is effectively a way in in which to prosecute or maintain forms of racism in a situation where the ideology of scientific racism is just just no longer viable? I mean, I don't think I'd describe it as kind of direct conspiracy, you know, following the emergence of decolonization following the um, disappearance of formal legal segregation and legal structures of racial differentiation. The war on drugs is cooked up as a kind of attempt to replace these particular you know, um, histories that are supposedly disavowed by the time we get to the late 20th century. But what I would say is that the idea of certain substances being inherently damaging upon pure ingestion to the kind of sovereign human subject was always co-constituted with ideas of certain racial subhuman groups being that kind of failed manifestation of that idealized human subject. That association was always co-constituted with each other. And so when you, and you can see that, you know, like I said, in the actual laws themselves, in the Congress reports that are given by some of the early drug prohibitionists, you know, for any of your listeners, please take the time to read Hamilton Wright, one of the the first American delegate to the early international drug prohibition conventions. His report to the United States Congress in 1914 talks extensively about the terrifying impact that cocaine is having upon racial subaltern groups like the blacks in the South of America and leading to them disregarding authority and disregarding the kind of natural hierarchy. So this stuff saturates early drug prohibition, the writings of Harry Anslinger, who after J. Edgar Hoover is probably the most influential American kind of domestic bureaucratic statesman, the founder of the, you know, the Federal Bureau on Narcotics. You know, a lot of these guys talk extensively about their ideas behind the fear of drugs as being its potential to leave the individual subject as violent, lazy, sexually immoral, unable to contain and control themselves, unable to do the kind of rational self-sacrifice that's associated with a kind of Protestant, Weberian um, work ethic, 
that's what they see as being the threat of those drugs. And that's obviously kind of easily translated into the same threat and repulsion that they have towards racial subaltern groups. When the laws become concretized and when they become a global norm, it's not surprising for me that their consequences are impacting across different groups around the world disproportionately. There's an asymmetry in terms of who is suffering the consequences of drug prohibition, who is suffering the kind of counter-narcotics um, intervention programs, who is suffering the aerial fumigation policies that attempt to eradicate these particular subjects, substances at their, at, their, at their site of production. That is not symmetrical across the world, and I think that betrays that asymmetry in terms of how the fear of these drugs was constituted. In terms of that point on the belief that these substances will undermine the uh, capacity of people to be sort of good citizens, to to conform, as you say, to that Weberian idea of the Protestant work ethic and delayed gratification and so on. I mean, obviously, there's there's something pretty arbitrary about which substances are prohibited and which ones aren't. So, I mean, you know, why is it that marijuana, say, or, or cocaine is conceived in these terms, but say alcohol and nicotine are not seen as, as that kind of a threat? First of all, there is a certain kind of just historical anomaly as to the extent to which alcohol and tobacco were ingrained within kind of Western culture at the time in which drug prohibition became a kind of international moral panic. I do think that there is also a kind of latent association of particular psychoactive substances as being able to facilitate the kind of yeah systems of production that obviously are encouraged by um, capitalist accumulation, you know, things like sugar and coffee and nicotine to a certain extent obviously play a huge role in being able to encourage a repetitive and consistent labour endeavour. But I think that in terms of trying to understand why not only was there fear, this association with the, the drugs that were constituted as being this moral threat, but also why they were able to be successfully prohibited in international law, which is a real it's a real disruption in the kind of linear chronology of capitalist production. Very rarely is there an example of a profitable global commodity, such as drugs were at the time of the 18th and 19th century, becoming prohibited from the international legal market, as that happens with them in the 20th century. I don't think you can understand that without understanding the changing order of the international community in terms of the shift away from an order of kind of European imperial rule to a system in which American global hegemony becomes the kind of overarching dictate and an assumption of a kind of universal humanity. Anchoring that is one that starts to become accepted. Mm. One of the things you say in the introduction is that to understand the relationship between the war on drugs and racial discrimination, one needs a, a deeper understanding of, of racism than one can get from liberal political theory. Would you be able to sort of sketch out what the liberal understanding of racism is and how it contrasts with the perspective that you would align yourself with? Yeah, so... Small question. I think, no, no, definitely. I think, first of all, I really want to just emphasise why we want to explain this connection between drugs and race, you know. When you actually look at the kind of empirical statistical information, whether you're looking at in the United States and America, where, you know, according to scholars like Michelle Alexander, 
black men in the United States of America being arrested and convicted for drug offences up to 20 times that of the white population, despite there being no recognised difference in the actual usage between those two groups, whether you're looking in the United Kingdom, where, you know, if you've looked at the kind of empirical work that's been produced by release, you can see the statistical inequalities in terms of who is stopped and searched for drugs, who is arrested for drugs, who is charged upon arrest and who's convicted, um, whether you look at places like Brazil and the United States, um, Canada, South Africa, these are all places that contributors to a recent answer collection I published, The War on Drugs in the Global Color Line, analyze in terms of how drug prohibition facilitates racial inequalities within their own specific jurisdictions, you see those discrepancies. And why that happens, I think, is because you have to understand race as not being something that is simply a historical anomaly that was the result of prejudice and that was the result of difference between potential groups. It's not simply an idea of groups being constituted as being the opposite of each other and having that kind of fear and prejudice as being a result of that difference, but it's a complete theoretical conceptualization of what the idealized form of humanity is. And the idealized form of humanity, like we mentioned, starting to solidify through the project of European imperialism, which race becomes a, 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 a you know sub-project of, highlights a certain sovereign subject, a certain subject that has that ability to facilitate that delayed gratification, has that ability to have that, you know, kind of Hegelian um, right of recognition of a similar subject in terms of its own logical self-constitution. The way race plays into that is an idea of that failed manifestation of that idealized human form. Hence the relationship between the racial subaltern subject and the idea of the subhuman, not being a different type of human, not being an opposite human, but a subservient version, a failed manifestation, a negation of that idealized subject. And when you start to see race upon those terms, you can start to see the way there's an easy translation with certain substances that are seen to facilitate that subjugation of the idealized human form. To put it shortly and put it crudely, a lot of the fear around drugs in the 20th century was that these were the substances that would have the ability to denigrate any human, regardless of what race they were. And denigrate, I use that word, you know, in full awareness of the kind of racial connotations of that to Negro, to make blacken. That is really what a lot of the fear around these substances were, that you could have the most successful, most in control, most uh, rational individual. And, you know, that is the, the kind of stereotype of drug addiction, you know, with heroin that you take one hit and all of a sudden this person is, you know, robbing and raping and attacking their grandmother and losing all type of moral fibre. That, I think, cannot be disassociated from the fear of the subhuman failed manifestation of idealized humanity that ties to the discourse of race. That notion of failed humanity, is it straightforwardly a necessity for material exploitation, whether we're talking about slavery or colonialism, that the act of prosecuting such things just necessitates conceiving of subject populations in those terms? I think absolutely, you know, especially when you start to burrow down into the kind of legal justifications that we're giving for 
the appropriation of resources and you know accumulation of wealth in the kind of European colonial projects, the idea as to why particular native populations did not were not able to claim property rights or able to claim sovereignty over the land on which they stood, the idea of upon European arrival finding those lands and declaring them to be terra nullius, to be lands without actual human inhabitants was based upon the idea that these people that were being encountered in these lands were not human in the total full sense of the word. They were that failed manifestation. They did not have the kind of rationality. They did not have the kind of individual sovereignty, which was then translated, obviously, into territorial sovereignty to be able to claim ownership and claim property rights over the resources that they were standing upon. On the basis of that, that was able to obviously facilitate the extraction, appropriation, theft, whatever you want to call it, of those resources, and the material and commercial benefits that resulted from the ability to trade those around the world. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.